I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Missouri this week. Or Missouri. Depends. Missouri. Yeah, Missouri. that's true. I've heard people say it that way. Yeah, yeah. So it's the show me state, which has always just been weird to me. But now you told me why and it really wasn't that interesting. I know it's not interesting. You're going to have to look it up yourselves, listeners. <laughs> that's how uninteresting it was. Uh, I did find some interesting things, though, about Missouri. And uh, one of them, which I think is super interesting, and it'll come up a little later in my fun facts, but there's a lot of different cities that have unique Missouri pronunciations. Really? Yeah. It's my favorite one, I think, that I saw, whereas there is a city that is spelled very similar to the island nation Haiti. Okay. But it's called Haiti. Weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... Think about it like there's Bangor, Pennsylvania, True. and Bangor, Maine. True. And then there's Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Lancaster, California, I believe. Oh, I always loved uh, New Tripoli. Yeah. Which is actually New Tripoli. Yeah, but, but... it's New Tripoli is how mm-hmm. we say it. Yeah. So I can't fault you too much for that, Missouri. You are an interesting state. For example, Missouri borders eight other states, which I didn't know. Oh, that's a lot of states to border. Yeah, the only other state that also has that many borders is Tennessee, which makes sense. Yeah, Tennessee was the one with the most. Mm-hmm. Well, and Missouri also borders Tennessee. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Missouri has also produced several famous writers, including, which some of these I was surprised to know they were from Missouri, but T.S. Eliot. Okay, I knew that one. Maya Angelou, Mark Twain. Tennessee Williams, and Sarah Teasdale, but surprisingly only one president, just Harry S. Truman, who's the only Missourian. All right. I did not know that. I thought Mark Twain was from there. It makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Some other fun things about Missouri. So St. Louis. Yeah. Great city. It's where the the archway is, the Mm -hmm. gateway to the West. Correct. And apparently 1904 was a super crazy year in St. Louis, aside from the St. Louis World's Fair, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Meet Me in St. Louis. Yep. Where we learned about such culinary delights as the waffle cone, cotton candy, a.k.a. fairy floss. Fairy floss. Iced tea and Dr. Pepper, which all premiered at the World's Fair in 1904. Did you see that little video of the raccoon? No. He had cotton candy and raccoons like to wash their food before they eat it. (gasps) No. He went to wash the cotton candy and it disintegrated and he was just like looking at his paws like what where did it go i feel so bad for that raccoon but also i would have laughed so hard watching that video yeah it was funny <laughs> in 1904 which is kind of crazy to me the city also hosted the summer olympics oh and it was at the same time that the world's fair was going on i was about to say i don't remember that then i remembered what year we were talking mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. it was actually the first uh, olympic games that were ever held in the u.s oh the st louis games um it was absolute chaos Athletes competed for four and a half months with one event each day of the fair. So basically, you have people coming in for the fair, people coming in for the Olympics. And the craziest part, though, was when they did the Olympic marathon. Almost half of the runners got heat stroke because it was so hot. Oh, no. And the first place winner cheated. Uh, they hitched a ride in a car what? from mile nine to mile 19. Probably because it had air conditioning. <laughs> Um, I told you about the Olympics before and like what goes on behind the scenes, right? I mean, we all know that the Olympic Village is quite the, uh, it is a nonstop orgy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They fly, they fly in like boxes upon boxes upon boxes of condoms and they get strewn all about the Olympic city and they just have forever to clean up. It normally ruins the economy for the city. It's a super spreader event in all kinds of ways. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
Um, what else about Missouri? Oh, this is a fun fact, and it ties into the fun place name. Uh, four of the largest earthquakes in North American history occurred between December 1811 and February 1812 in New Madrid, Missouri. Okay. Or New Madrid, depending on how you like to pronounce it. All righty. Yeah. They were huge. They were like 0.8 magnitude. So like bigger than some of the very devastating California earthquakes we can remember. Missouri is also home to one of the most destructive tornadoes in U.S. history. You guys don't move to Missouri, please. Don't don't do it. (laughs) Although (laughs) their barbecue is so good. Uh, The Tri-State Tornado, which happened on March 18th, 1925, killed almost 700 people, injured over 2,000 people, and demolished an estimated 15,000 homes throughout Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. Holy shit. In fact, Annapolis, Missouri, was over destroyed. uh, About 90% of it was destroyed by the tornado. And basically, when the residents got back, there was nothing there except for a few houses and businesses. Damn. On a lighter note. If you do decide to brave the contemptuous weather and possible seismic activity of Missouri, you can visit St. Louis, which has more major free visitor attractions than any place in the U.S. outside of Washington, D.C., where, like, you know, every museum on the mall is free in D.C. Yeah. In St. Louis, you can check out the St. Louis Art Museum, the St. Louis Zoo, the Chahokia Mounds, the Museum of Westward Expansion, the St. Louis Science Center, the Missouri History Museum, the Anheuser-Busch Brewery, Grant's Farm, and more attractions, all for free. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, nice place to visit. Yeah. But wouldn't want to live there because um, natural disasters abound. Mm-hmm. That's all I have for fun facts about the Show Me State. All right. I enjoyed that. <laughs> it also terrified me a little bit. That I'm doing my job. All righty. Well, I have a true crime story for you. So my story for this week takes place in, guess what, St. Louis, Missouri. Shocker! St. Louis is the largest metropolitan area in the state with an estimated population of 300,576. Everyone knows St. Louis not only for this reason, but also because of the Gateway Arch, which is the giant arch structure downtown. St. Louis is also notable for having the fourth largest river system in the world, with the Missouri River meeting the Mississippi River in the area. It has a ton of nicknames like the Gateway City. Make sure you watch your kids around this one. It's a Gateway City. (laughs) Gateway to the West, Mound City, the Lou, Rome of the West, River City, the STL, and St. Lou. St. Lou. So it was founded by French fur traders, and the name comes from Louis IX of France. The Saint. I had to remember my Roman numerals after writing (laughs) these notes. Um... The city was actually founded on Valentine's Day of 1764. Hmm. It was not incorporated, however, until 1822. It has three different airports, a zoo, a botanical garden. There are plenty of things to do in a city this size from dining, nightlife, walking trails, parks, you name it. St. Louis has got it. Cool. Including a murder spree. That's like something out of a horror movie. This is the story of the St. Louis Strangler. What? They had their own Strangler? Yes, they did. I've never heard of this. I'm, I'm kind of excited to learn more about. Well, I will tell you more. Yay! Because it's kind of my job. <laughs> I'm going to start off by saying that this story takes place in both St. Louis, Missouri and East St. Louis, Illinois. 
uh, with us starting off in the latter and working our way to the former. They're like right next to each other, yes. right? Okay. It's like right across a bridge or something. Gotcha. Um, East St. Louis is notoriously crime-ridden from what I understand. Mm. Uh, so it makes sense for this story. So um, East St. Louis uh, is n- kind of not the safest of the cities. Um, there's a lot of theft, violent crime, and other criminal activities such as drug dealing and prostitution. I want to start by saying that this case will have something to do with sex workers, which, in my personal opinion, should just be legal at this point since it would be safer for everyone involved. Um, This story only reinforces that in my mind, but to each their own. You don't have to agree with me. Anyway, everything starts off with a 34-year-old woman by the name of Elisa Greenway. Uh, she was found dead in Washington Park, Illinois, which is listed as a village. And seeing it on a map, it's right outside of East St. Louis. Okay, so like the suburbs. Yeah. Uh, so I think it might be part of the city, but I'm not entirely sure, so don't quote me on it. Gotcha. Anyway, Elisa's body was found on April of 2001. They found her outside, strangled to death. She had ligature marks on her wrists and ankles, which means that she had been tied up with something prior. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a sex worker, like I mentioned. You might wonder why a lot of times we tend to delve into stories where we find a lot of sex workers being murdered by serial killers. Think about it. As a sex worker, you're on the street. You get into strangers' cars. You're easy prey for everyone who wants to come along and just take you. Not only is it difficult to stay safe when you're doing that in, you know, it's considered illegal, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, a lot of sex workers don't have a lot of family, and they aren't well thought of by the general public. Plus, the police tend to not care as much when a sex worker goes missing. Yeah, plus it's always, you know, police will have a tendency to arrest the sex worker versus her client. Exactly. So, basically, not only are they easy targets, but most of the time, they won't be missed, essentially. Uh, the only real evidence... In the area was a tire impression made by a Bridgestone Potenza tire. Okay. Shortly after the discovery of Elisa's body, uh, more bodies began popping up in the surrounding area, all sex workers, all out in the open, and all of which were right by a road where someone could find them. So just don't care, just dumping them. Jump so someone will find the body, it seems Hmm. like. I know that one that they found was named Betty James. No clues were really found at this point, but there was a tire impression on Betty's leg. Okay. Uh, you're probably expecting this to be a Bridgestone Potenza, but oddly enough, it was a Goodridge Advantage, so not the same car, mm-hmm. or at least not the same tires. More bodies kept popping up, and rape kits were performed on these victims post-mortem to try to create a possible DNA profile to dredge up some suspects. Since they were sex workers, of course, this didn't have to mean the last person they slept with was the killer, but it would at least give the police something to look at. Right. Uh, another weird thing about this case is that in a mere six months after the first murder took place, these bodies stopped piling up. This could obviously mean a few things. Now, I know I've mentioned before that serial killers usually have a cooldown period, so this could be that. But, Nicole, I think that you've mentioned this before when talking about cold cases and stuff. Uh, it could mean that he's in custody somewhere mm-hmm. or that he died or simply left the area. This is when the FBI stepped in and a female FBI agent came in. That's right. Our favorite kind. Lady agent. Anyway, her name was Melanie Jimenez. She pronounces it Jimenez. Good for her. But Very Missouri. All right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
She sent the info that she had over to a behavioral profiler at Quantico, which is my dream job pretty much. Uh, It combines my love of psychology with my love of crime solving, so why not? (laughs) The profiler, however, felt that it was going to be a difficult one since there was nothing much linking the victims. Since these women were sex workers, that's about the only thing that they had in common, and that's all they could go on besides the fact that they may have been dealing with a black serial killer, which, fun fact, is super rare. Hmm. Uh, It's normally white males. Uh, The reason for thinking the killer is black in this instance actually goes back to something I said before. Uh, So this seems to be kind of like an episode for us where we're making points that we've already made. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, all the victims, I think, were black. Okay. Uh, which means it's more common for people like rapists and serial killers to kill or rape within their own race for whatever reason. So weird. Yeah, it just seems to happen. It's just a thing that tends to to be. I don't know. Mm. Three months after this, the killing started up again, and East St. Louis was yet again the dumping site for these victims. Their names were Verona Thompson, Yvonne Cruz, and Brenda Beasley. This makes a total of 10 victims so far now. Wow. There was an article around this time in the St. Louis Dispatch about Teresa Wilson, who was one of the victims. And this article was written by a journalist by the name of Bill Smith. So what makes this so special, you ask? Well, after this article, uh, which put a more human face to the victims, he got a weird letter one day. The letter was a little weird right from the get-go, honestly. The postage stamp was upside down, and the return address was I Thraldom, New York, New York, 10012. <laughs> so it sounds super fake. Super fake. The letter went on to say, Dear Bill, nice sob story about Teresa Wilson. Write one about Greenwade. Write a good one, and I'll tell you where many others are. To prove I'm real, here's directions to number 17. What? Yep. Search in a 50-yard radius from the X. Put the story in the Sunday paper like last time. When researching this I Thraldom thing, mm-hmm. they found this bondage fetish site with the same name. Uh, no idea if that's significant or not at this point, but that's what they found. Interesting. Now, along with that letter, there was also a map of Highway 67, which had the X he was referring to. Creepy, right? Mm-hmm. We're getting to like thriller movie territory yeah. here. So Bill Smith did the right thing and he handed this letter over to the police. The police went to where the letter stated and surely enough, they found yet another body. Now that they knew this guy was not joking around and he was in fact the killer, they did a little more research into this letter. They were able to tell from the postmark that this letter was not sent from New York, but right in St. Louis. Ooh. So right there in Missouri, one man working for the police had the daunting task of trying to figure out where this map came from, which was cropped and just printed on computer paper. Hmm. So any sort of like, you know, website or anything that he got it from was gone. Okay. Um, After a while of checking literally everywhere, he was able to find what he was looking for, thankfully. Hmm. Was it MapQuest? No. Okay. It turned out to be from Expedia.com. Hmm. Uh, which I'm sure we've all used at least or at least heard of. Yes. Now they were able to narrow down the suspect pool by cross-referencing the people who accessed that map in about a four to five day range from when the letter was sent. 
Well, Microsoft, who I believe owned Expedia, or at least the maps that they used, didn't want to cooperate right away, so they had to be subpoenaed, which I understand. That's fair. I mean, it's consumer information, right? Exactly. It's always that weird gray area where you want to help with the investigation, but user privacy is always a big deal, too. Mm -hmm. So it actually turned out that only one person downloaded that map in that time frame, and it was the exact size as the one sent to Bill Smith what bingo that's so crazy that that's what broke like the case or at least give you a suspect oh my god exactly so they were able to get the ip number from microsoft but had to then perform an ip reversal to get the name of the individual Mm. uh interestingly enough and this was something i absolutely did not know before doing these notes although now you have an ip address that does not change Mm -hmm. Uh, unless you're using like a Tor browser or something which randomizes things. Uh, however, back when we all had dial-up, yep. Uh, yes, that's right. We're fossils, and we can still hear that sound <laughs> of the of connecting to the internet in our heads. It sounds like a computer dying. Yes. Well, that IP address obtained from a dial-up connection changes each and every time you reconnect to the internet. Hmm. I did not know that. They were able to figure out that the map was downloaded at 7.36 p.m. Central Time, which is, again, the correct time zone for Missouri. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it had come from New York, like the return address said, it would be Eastern like us. This also gave them the date, which was May 20th, as well as the username, which was Mari Travis. Hmm. So it sounds like person's name, right? Yeah. Double bingo? Is that a thing? Like if I have diagonal and four corners? I don't know, but they got a double bingo there. (laughs) So cross-referencing this gave them an address in Ferguson, Missouri, which is outside of St. Louis. The home was owned by a 55-year-old woman who had no priors. So they were like, all right, well. That's weird. Yeah. The FBI go to the home and knock on the door several times before someone finally comes to the door. It's a man and a woman. And the guy is just like in his boxers and he's really mad about this. And he's just like really at 7 a.m. Yeah. I mean, understandably, it's early. Yeah. The police show the guy like their search warrant because they have a federal fucking warrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and he asked why they were there. They told him, you already know. Apparently, at this point, he just put his head down and looked defeated and said, yeah, I know why you're here. Really? Yeah. So that was easy. It's like huh. that button from Staples or whatever. I know. I feel like that's like the most like cop response ever. It's like, you know why? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I, I I don't. That's why I asked you the question. Exactly. Just like almost every time you get pulled over at night, mm-hmm. the cop will be like, were you drinking tonight? I can smell it on you. I'm like, no, I just came from work. Uh, <laughs> pretty sure I'm not drinking. Um, so, yeah. Uh, when they searched this house. They found the computer in question, along with women's wigs and, like, shoes and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, a stun gun, some home movies, which were mostly of him talking to some lovely ladies. Uh, upon searching the basement of this house, they found that just about everything down there was covered in blood. What? He didn't even clean up. Okay. Yeah. So... I'm not sure if they saw this while he was in custody during the search or when, but one of the videos was actually of him committing a murder, so he just earned the Kim Rico Award right there. What? Yeah. The sofa, the floor, the rugs, the ceiling, walls, the doors, 
all had blood spatter on it. There's a fucking video of him committing murder, like I said. Uh, they also found building plans for the basement in the house where he was planning on putting in some truly lovely holding cells for his victims. Uh, I mean, I just don't think a house is truly a home without those. They just add so much value, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, like, this freaking holding cells. Like, what do you even say? Because he was actually hiring contractors for the work. Just be like, hi, yes, I'm wondering if someone could come out and give me a quote for a murder dungeon. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I like to make films. Yes. And again, he bought more shackles and handcuffs on the damn internet. So that was all traceable. Wow. When asked who he was, he said that his name was Mari Travis. Okay. Mari was a 36-year-old man who was currently on parole for robbery that he committed back in 1989. This was all going down in 2002, and he was out of jail by 1994, from what I gather. Uh, he also had multiple other trips to jail, but I don't know what for. Uh, I'm majorly confused when it comes to how dumb this guy is. Like, why would you go and not only commit a bunch of murders while on parole for a lesser crime, then decide that it would be a good idea to write letters about the crimes, which you know are going to make their way to the police? Hmm. It just seems really dumb on his part. I mean, maybe it's like a recklessness thing, right? Could be. Like, like, they're so dumb, they're never going to catch me. This is definitely the disorganized variety of serial killer. Mm. Um, and it shows. So what we know about his past, other than the fact that he was on parole for robbery, is that he was born in St. Louis, Missouri on October 25th, 1965. His parents divorced when he was a child. Um, he was a quiet kid. Mm -hmm. He was in the Army Reserves for two years, and he attended Morris Brown College, which is in Atlanta, where he became addicted to cocaine. Oh, uh, I don't know if that fueled his crime spree, but upon further digging, I was able to find out that it wasn't just one robbery he committed in 89, but like a string of them. There were five in total. Oh. So I was wondering, like, why is he on parole for like this long for a robbery? Like, yeah, you know, so, no, it's just lots of bad choices. A lot. Yeah. Lots of bad choices. Okay. So when asked by the FBI, the woman who was also in the house at the time, who was his living girlfriend, it turned out said that she'd never been down in the basement and that she had no reason to go down there. It sounds a little fishy to me, but, you know. You know, I I would also agree that it sounds fishy, but I'll tell you what. There are certain times when I forget that, like, you know, in my house, like, my wife never goes into my office unless I ask her to help me with something in my office. Like, Is why that where you're she? hiding the bodies, Nicole? Shh. That's where I have my Christmas presents, though, actually. Oh, okay. That's good. Um, but <laughs> I hide mine in with the laundry. Because, you know, I'll never go there. Yep. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I can kind of slightly understand that a little bit. But, like, also, like, if there's, like, creepy, scary murder noises coming from your basement. Yeah. It's like, it's his train set. Like, yeah, right. Uh-huh. Sure. His horror movie train set. Mm -hmm. So uh, where the computer was in the basement, there was a desk with some cabinet-type drawers. Uh, they were locked, but they got them open, and there was a backpack inside with duct tape straps and other serial killer doohickeys oh that's his murder bag yep cool i forget what they call it there was a word for it that the fbi uses and i forget what it is now it's not a go bag because that's when you're like on the run no but it's something similar to that mm. they analyzed the blood in the basement and they were able to pinpoint that it came from six different people oh yeah when looking at the computer's hard drive they found several rough drafts of the letter that he had sent to bill okay 
They also found newspaper clippings from some of the murders, so that's yet another strike against this guy. In the garage, they found two cars, and as you probably can guess, one had the Bridgestone tires and the other had the Goodridge. Yikes. Yikes. They take him in for questioning in St. Louis, and they just start grilling him about the other victims since they had only found 11 now, and there were supposed to be six more out there somewhere. They said when questioning him that he was just like all about himself, like really braggy, really, you know, um, and he didn't really seem to give a shit about the human beings that he had murdered, like it was all some sort of game to him. He asked for a soda during the interrogation, and the police ended up taking it to get a DNA sample since that's within their rights to do. As soon as you put it down and walk away from it or throw it out in the trash, that is no longer your property and they can do whatever they want with it. Mm. So they compared it to what they found on two of the victims, and it was a match. He didn't end up giving up the goods as far as the other victims uh, and was placed in a holding cell for the time being. Since he was in jail before this, he was all, I'm not going back there. You're not giving me the needle. Mm-hmm. Uh, boohoo, maybe you should have thought about that before killing 17 women. Just something to think about. Yeah. He was placed on suicide watch and guards were sent to check on him every 15 minutes. This didn't work out so well because there was a good half hour to 45 minutes where the guards just didn't check on him for whatever reason. Like they mixed two back-to-back sessions. Yikes. Uh, And within that time period, when they came to finally check on him, they found him hanging in his cell. Oh. Trey Shocker. So, yeah. So even though we pretty much know he, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he committed these murders. Mm -hmm. He was only formally charged with the two that they had the DNA evidence for, and he never spilled about the other bodies, and he never, in so many words, confessed to these murders. Uh, Some people today believe that he didn't commit all 11 of those murders, while there's others who think that he did but lied about committing 17 of them. And still there are others who think that he may have killed as many as 20 women. Wow. So what do you think, Nicole? Oh. Yeah, it's a tough one because it's, you know, when a perpetrator is, you know, dead before, before you act, trial. Yeah, before you can actually dig through the facts and, and get more information. Because I feel like just the way you explained, like, the ego on this guy, he mm-hmm. would have eventually, like, slipped up talking oh, about yeah. himself. Well, I mean, he did several times during their, um, during them questioning. I forget exactly what he said, mm. but, like, I watched a little bit of footage on YouTube and... He was just kind of like, so how'd you find out this? Oh, shit. I forgot about that. Like, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I mean, I think he probably killed more than the 11 people that yeah. they think he killed just because, I mean, based off of previous stories, I feel that more often than not, a serial killer kind of has like that first murder, which is almost a crime of passion or like yeah. unplanned. It can be. And then it kind of escalates after that. Yeah. More they, and more. they get the thrill of it. Yeah, because it, seem, it seems like the murders that the police can identify seem to be further evolved, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, like I get he's, that. He's like leaving them places. He has his little murder dungeon. Yep. And I think that's a sign of somebody who's very evolved in their, their murder spree. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure he, I wouldn't be surprised if he killed more than 11 people. Neither 20, would I. I no idea, but. Yeah, because he 
said that it was 17, but who knows. My sources for this week were Wikipedia, NewYorkTimes.com, a Forensic Files episode titled X Marks the Spot, Medium.com, ABCNews.go.com, and STLToday.com. Thanks for that story, Eden. I was excited to learn about the St. Louis Strangler, and now I am depressed that there was such a creature as the St. Louis Strangler. Uh, Right? Yeah. No, this was like a fucked up story. Yeah. I just heard about him like kind of like cat and mousing the the police, Mm -hmm. Uh, which turned out to be less of a thing than I thought it was going to be, but it was still a good story. Cool. All right. Well, I guess we'll take a brief break, and then uh, I'll, I'll tell you my not quite as gruesome Paranormal story. (laughs) All right, we'll go with that. We'll be back. And we're back. Hi, guys. I have an interesting news story going again with the animal theme. I love it. So this one is from UPI.com. Okay. It's a news site. Mm -hmm. And it says, bear relocated after repeated snack runs at California store. (laughs) There's like a video, too, that I'll show you. And it's it's pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so wildlife officials in California said they have captured and relocated a black bear that became famous online for its repeated visits to a gas station convenience store. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife said the bear, which became a viral celebrity after security cameras recorded it pilfering snacks from inside the Chevron gas station in Kings Beach on multiple occasions, was safely captured and revealed to be a 16-year-old male. Officials said the bear has been relocated to, quote, a large expanse of wild, suitable bear habitat, end quote. No more nachos for you, bear. Sorry. Anne Bryant with the Bear League, bear in capital letters, so it must be an acronym. Okay. uh, Said that she is concerned the bear's relocation could put its life at risk due to a leg injury from a broken bone that did not heal correctly. That's sad. I think it was not good for the bear, Bryant told KOVRTV. If he was taken to another bear bear's habitat, the other bear is going to be territorial. This bear is compromised. It's crippled. He's crippled. He had a crippling addiction to nachos, and that's for sure. But well, you know what they say: once you taste that cheesy flavor, you never go back. Exactly. But I thought that was pretty great. A bear just like being like, "Let me go out for a stroll. Ooh, this looks good. Okay, I'll take this. Bye, guys. Not paying. Flaming hot Doritos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very cute. Thank you. Absolutely. Now you have a story. I do have a story. So for our story today, we are heading to Columbia, Missouri. Founded in 1821, Columbia is the seat of Boone County, named after, of course, Daniel Daniel Boone, Boone. who considered Missouri his home and lived there the longest out of all the states he lived in. Okay. Uh, Columbia is Missouri's fourth most populous city and fastest growing city with an estimated population of 123,000 residents. Okay. Columbia is surrounded by forested hills and rolling prairies that you see commonly in mid-Missouri. It's near the Missouri River Valley, where the Ozark Mountains begin to transform into plains. Already. Now, historically, the area was home to the Osage and Missouri indigenous peoples for centuries. In the 18th century, French fur traders began pushing into the area and displacing the native tribes. During the early 19th century, American settlers, mostly from Virginia and Kentucky, began to rapidly settle in the area and further expelled the indigenous population. Great. As always. By the 1920s, Columbia was pretty well settled and incorporated. The city's economy was founded around three things, education, medicine, and insurance. 
Okay. They all kind of go hand in hand. Very nice. We do make a lot of insurance-related quips, or at least I do on this show. So. <laughs> and surprisingly, these industries are still very much an important part of Columbia's financial and economic engine today. William Jewell, namesake of the eponymous university and influential resident of Columbia, helped found the first hospital there in 1822 and served as the city's second mayor. Under his leadership, the streets were paved, modern sanitation and sewers were built. He was also very prominent in the Baptist church there and helped establish several of the universities and also uh, medical institutes within the city. Did you ever live in Philadelphia, Nicole? No. Because I've noticed something with the words that you say. See this word. Say M-A-Y-O-R. Mayo? M-A-Y-O-R. Oh, mayor. Mayor? Yeah, mayor. Yeah, mayor. You, you say mayor. Mayor. Like a, like a horse. Oh, yeah. Uh, both my parents are from Philadelphia. Oh, so. there you go. <laughs> I, I, I uh, get corrected many times by my wife. I say things like pump, pumpkin. Pumpkin? What's wrong with pumpkin? Pu- pumpkin. Oh, pumpkin. Okay. I say pumpkin, and uh, I recently learned how to say the word sink properly instead of zinc so zinc oh wow i've never heard you do that one yeah i I try really hard not to i like it though so columbia uh it continued to grow rapidly mostly because of where it was located as we talked about missouri is kind of the gateway to the west Mm -hmm. and columbia was gateway drug gateway drug gateway city gateway state uh columbia was a stagecoach stop on the santa fe and oregon trail and eventually became a train stop on the missouri kansas texas railroad did anybody die of dysentery that's a good question. I know I always did. I did too. Damn that game. Also, I hated fording rivers. I'm like, I'm going to die. I actually have a card game that's uh, Oregon Trail now. Oh, really? I haven't played it, but I heard it's even tougher than the computer game. Oh, we got to do it next game night. Yes. Now, as Columbia was being plotted out, the early residents specifically set aside land to be used for educational institutes. Uh, when Missouri decided to establish a state university in the 1830s, Columbia was ready. Residents raised three times as much money in matching funds for the state than any other competing city, and the University of Missouri was founded there in 1839. Nice. Yeah. Today, Columbia is definitely a college town. Like, sometimes it's called College Town USA. Okay. I've heard that before. Yep. And it's known for its progressive politics, persuasive journalism, and its abundant public art. Sounds very college Yes, very college In addition to the University of Missouri, the city is also home to two other prominent higher educational institutes, Columbia College and our stop for today, Stevens College. Okay, I've heard of it. Good, good. I've heard of it because I am a woman and I went to college. (laughs) And uh, Stevens College is a private women's liberal arts college. There we go. It's one of the women's schools. That's why I know it too. It's also the second oldest female educational institute that's still a women's college today that only has female students. Uh, It was founded in 1833, making it the first of the three colleges founded within Columbia city limits. Very nice. Now, originally it was called Columbia Female Academy, and it was renamed the Columbia Female Baptist Academy in 1856. Then in 1870, after James L. Stevens endowed the college with $20,000, it was renamed Stevens Female College in his honor. Located within the city landscape of Columbia, Stevens College actually has a pretty big campus. It's 48 acres, and it's home to about 860-some students. Okay. The curriculum is organized around two main schools, health sciences and arts and humanity. In addition to undergraduate degrees, Stevens also offers a master's of education and counseling, master's of fine arts in television and screenwriting, 
and a master's in physician's assistant studies. Stevens ranks in the top third of all colleges in the Midwest, and it's among the Princeton Review's best 385 colleges in the U.S. The Princeton Review also ranked the college's theater program as the number ninth best theater program in the country. Very cool. Yeah, I did not know that. Now, this theater program also includes the Warehouse Theater Company, which is a student-run playhouse on campus, and it stages an average of four different productions per academic season. And each year since 2008, Stevens College has hosted the Citizen Jane Film Festival. It's a film festival that showcases films made by women, so women who act and also women who are behind the camera directing, producing, and writing screenplays. That's cool. I like it. Yeah. I would totally go to that. Stevens College has a robust student life as well. It's one of only four women's colleges that allow sorority houses on campus. There's also more than a dozen academic honor societies on campus. Students also participate in several sports, including basketball, competitive dance, cross country, soccer, softball, volleyball, and esports. Which what are esports? They're like elect- like things like Fortnite. Oh. They're all like computer games that you are a sport because you compete in leagues. Oh, okay. I yeah. guess I can see that. It's actually the first varsity esport team of any woman, all women's college in the country. And the best part about all of Stephen College's teams, you know what their mascot is or their team names? What? The Stars. Oh. Stephen College Stars. I thought that was super awesome. That is pretty cool. <laughs> You'll like this, Eden. Since 2004, the student housing on Stephen College campus has been pet friendly. Oh, cool. And the college encourages students to foster shelter animals in exchange for scholarships. Wow, that's really neat. Isn't I that like cool? It. It's like, hey, you want to foster some kittens? We'll, we'll cut some money after tuition. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I thought that was super cool. Now, the college has been around for a long time and it has tons of alumni. They're found in every state in the U.S. and its alumni association has more than 20,000 members. Well, Some alumni you may have heard of include the journalist Paula Zahn and the actresses Annie Potts. Oh, wow. Jennifer Tilly. Wow. And Don Wells, a.k.a. Marianne from Gilligan's oh, Island. Oh, okay. That was the one name that I didn't know, but mm-hmm. I still knew who she is. Okay. Mm-hmm. I always liked her better than Ginger. I also schooled when I discovered that Joan Crawford also briefly attended Stevens College for a few months before withdrawing. She realized that college just wasn't for her and she wasn't prepared for it. Interesting. Okay. I think it worked out okay for her. I think so, too. If you're interested in attending Stevens College, let's chat a little bit more about the campus and some of the spooky goings on there. All right. With its 187-year history, it's not surprising that Stevens College is host to quite a bit of paranormal activity given the large number of historic buildings on campus. Searcy Hall, which was originally named West Hall, is a residence hall known for its balconies and community living slash learning spaces. They named it after a witch from The Odyssey? Great question. It's not. It's actually S-E-A-R-C-Y. It was named after a beloved college professor. Okay. I thought it was named after the one who turned the guys into pigs. Fair enough. Fair enough. Speaking of sorcery, you could argue that you can kind of hear some spooky crap at Searcy Hall. Oh. Students report the odd sounds of hearing a baby cry in the darkness of night. Great. That's just the kind of haunting I want. Mm -hmm. It's annoying in real life. It's annoying from ghosts and very (laughs) creepy. Don't want it. Nope. Now, according to campus lore, these phantom baby cries started in the 1970s after a student who was unaware that she was pregnant gave birth in one of the community bathrooms. The girl panicked. What is this? Scream Queens? (laughs) Yes. It's very reminiscent of Scream Queens. 
The girl panicked, wrapped the newborn baby in a blanket, and abandoned it in a locker. Oh, my God. Later, the girl's roommate discovered her bleeding heavily in their dorm room and alerted emergency services. Oh, damn. The girl survived, but unfortunately, the baby did not. I was assuming. Some versions of this disturbing tale say that afterwards, the girl withdrew from Stevens College and that her parents made a large financial donation to the school to kind of keep the story quiet. That also makes sense. Yeah. Although, spoiler alert, it didn't work. (laughs) So if the ghostly baby whales and Searcy Hall aren't your thing, you could try moving into Columbia Hall. This dorm. Not much better, I'm assuming. Well, this dorm's pretty cool. It consists of two and four bedroom apartments that are fully furnished, air conditioned, and they include kitchens with refrigerators, stoves, as well as a private bathroom. So that's pretty swanky for college dorm rooms. Typically because of the swankiness, this is where the upperclassmen live. And it also has its own special form of weird paranormal activity. Great. Yeah. (laughs) Columbia Hall residents report strange footsteps at night. And some of the girls that have lived there over the years have experienced periods of unexplained bruising on their arms or legs. I'm glad you finished that sentence. Because I'm like, <laughs> well, they should be experiencing their periods. Let's hope they've <laughs> gone through puberty by now. One resident who experienced bruising during her junior year said that she didn't think much of it at first because she often would get bruises on her legs. Yeah. But the locations of the bruises would remain consistent. So when one bruise would heal, she'd often wake up with a brand new bruise in, in the, the exact, exact same, same place. Hmm. Creepy, right? Yeah. Mm-mm. Not for me. No, I don't like that very much at all. Okay. So if mysterious bruises and creepy footsteps are too much for you, you can also try living at Pillsbury Hall. Oh, with no. the Doughboy. <laughs> Built in 1940 and used as the primary residence for freshmen on campus, Pillsbury Hall offers students. Oh, God. Wait, it's freshman housing? Yeah, it's freshman housing. Pillsbury? Mm-hmm. You know what the Pillsbury Doughboy's name is, right? No. Poppin' Fresh. <gasps> Poppin' Fresh? Yeah. <laughs> Poppin' Fresh. That's kind of great. That's kind of great. I wonder if they did that on purpose. Now, the students who live here get to enjoy sweet-style dorm rooms and also a trio of ghosts known as the Blue Ladies. Oh. Now, these are actually pretty gentle spirits. Most of the students say that these spirits will soothe the homesick freshmen by singing soft lullabies and tucking them into bed. Okay, creepy, but okay. But kind of like basically the opposite of every other bedtime ghost friend. Yeah, <laughs> where it's yeah. Like, we're freeing the covers off. It's like, no, the blue ladies just sing you a sweet lullaby and just tuck, tuck it. Just a little comfy tuck in their suits. <laughs> oh, no. Now, since almost all of Stephen College residents live in Pillsbury Hall at some point their freshman year, a lot of people have experienced hearing these like lullabies from and the blue ladies. Ghostly tuckings. Ghostly tuckings. <laughs> Episode title. (laughs) Well, so it's not just the residence halls on Stephen College's campus that are haunted. You can find ghosts in lots of other buildings, too. Okay. Uh, One source I found said that it's probably one of the most haunted colleges in America. Nice. Uh, One such building is Senior Hall. It was built in the 1840s, and it's the oldest building on campus. Today, it's primarily an academic slash faculty building. It has a recital hall in it, some parlors, and a boardroom. It's built in this gorgeous Victorian style, and originally it was an all-purpose building and the only residence hall on campus until 1918. Wow. And it's a former student resident who still haunts Senior Hall. The story goes that during the Civil War, Columbia, Missouri, and Stevens College, by extension, was relatively unscathed. 
This was despite the conflict between the more liberal pro-Union residents of Columbia and the pro-Confederacy residents of the surrounding Boone County, many of whom had roots and family in southern states. When Union forces arrived in Boone County after a skirmish with Confederate troops, a tense peace settled over the city. Union troops would regularly patrol Boone County for the rest of the Civil War, looking for stray Confederate squads. One night, a student named Sarah Wheeler discovered a wounded Confederate soldier on Stevens College campus. Sympathetic to the wounded man because she also had family down south, Mm -hmm. she hid the man in her room in Senior Hall. Well, you know how these things go. And they spent lots of late nights bonding and relating, and eventually they fell in love. Florence Nightingale syndrome. Mm Mm-hmm. When fellow students discovered Sarah's secret hidden Confederate lover, because, I mean, let's be real, girls talk. Yes. The two formed a plan to run away together. They waited until nightfall so they could better avoid the patrolling Union soldiers. Unfortunately, their escape plan did not go well. They escaped the campus, but they drowned attempting to cross the Hickson River. For decades afterwards, students report seeing a young woman in 1860s attire wandering the halls of Senior Hall. By the 1970s, the building was no longer a resident hall, and it was only partially used. But the stories of Sarah Wheeler's ghosts were such a huge part of campus lore that Senior Hall was regularly a spooky destination for Halloween revelers. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I found a wonderful article about the spooky goings-on in Senior Hall. In the Columbia Tribune, in 1971, a journalist decided to do his own ghost hunt at the resident hall, and he also bumped into the new drama teacher, this guy named uh, Peter Biger, who had just started at the college that year. It was his first Halloween on campus, and he had learned about Sarah Wheeler's ghost, and he and his wife agreed to join a group of students who were going to go to Senior Hall to do a Halloween seance. Okay. Always a great idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the group goes up to the third floor around midnight and they light a bunch of candles like you do. And according to Biger, we, quote, put the candles on the floor. And at some point, the door slammed and the candles blew out. And one of the girls in the group screamed and passed out. I mean, there was all sorts of commotion in the hallway. Everyone's kind of frozen there. Biger goes to open the door to investigate. He encounters Bob Gassaway, who is the reporter from the Columbia Tribune. Now... Gassaway tells him that he was in the hallway because he, quote, heard a sound of slow footsteps. Then they stopped and he heard heavy, deep breathing. Hmm. He saw the figure of a man, saw the swish of a woman's long skirt out of the corner of his eye. He turned to look and he saw a man who was in a half crouch, his left hand extended as if to ward off something. Then both figures disappeared down the stairs. Creepy. So kind of sounds almost like a residual haunting. Yes, very much. Biger also shared that after the seance, uh, they left and went, went home. And apparently the whole seance debacle put Biger on Sarah Whaler's ghostly shit list. Mm-hmm. He got a call later that morning. He said it was about three o'clock and it was from two students who were coming back from a party. They were passing senior hall and they met a woman in a long flowing gown and she stopped them and asked them if they knew Biger. Mm-hmm. And the woman told the girls that he was no longer welcomed in senior hall, but his wife was. Huh. She then strode off into the darkness. Weird. Super weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> so senior, uh, senior hall was eventually renovated and fully restored in the 1990s. And the similar sightings of Sarah Wheeler continue to this day. So people will say they see 
flashes or out of the corner of their eye a woman wearing a long like civil war style dress and then they turn to look and she disappears interesting okay so i have one last ghost story for you Alrighty, do tell now this one's tied to the stevens college theater department uh i know more i previously theater ghosts more theater ghosts now i know i mentioned that stevens has one of the top ranked theater programs in the country and that's due in no small part to a woman named Maud Adams, who headed the theater department from 1937 to 1949. And she was known as a very inspiring teacher of the art of acting. Have you ever heard of Maud Adams? I don't think so. Neither had I. And I was super surprised when I read more about her and learned how she ended up teaching at Stevens College. So Maud Adams was the daughter of an actress. And she started acting as a child. And by the time she was 16 years old, she was appearing in Broadway plays. By 1900, she was starring in plays, including some of the most lucrative plays of the era. But her true claim to fame was that Maude Adams was the originator of the role of Peter Pan. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. When uh, J.M. Barr finally agreed to produce Peter Pan as a play on Broadway in 1905, Maude was cast as Peter Pan. She was the first actress to ever portray Pan on stage, and she also co-designed the costume, which is where we get the Peter Pan-style collar. Yeah. Yep, that was Maude Adams. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, kind of cool, right? Yeah. So this part of Peter Pan was extremely successful. It was one of the most lucrative plays of the year, and it kind of rocketed Maude to superstar status. She became one of the most successful and highest-paid performers of the day, one of the sources I found said that her annual income was more than $1 million during her peak. So we're talking a $1 million in 1906. That's a lot. That's a crazy amount yeah, of money. That's a whole lot. So aside from being a good actress, Ma was also personally very charismatic. And that led her to get more roles. And her specialty role was sort of the innocent or chase ingenue or girl next door. Gotcha. So picture like Sandra Bullock or Meg Ryan. Yeah. And that's pretty much Maude Adams. Okay. She ended up retiring from acting in 1918 after she got gravely ill with influenza. Oh, well, but, that would be the time for it. Yep, yep, it would be the time. But overall, she was pretty successful. Uh, she also had a really sterling reputation in the theater world. Maude was known to be really generous. She would often supplement the salaries of fellow performers with her own pay. Wow. One great story I found was about how when she was out on tour... A theater owner significantly raised the price of tickets, knowing that just having Maude's name attached to the play would sell out the house. Oh, yeah. So on opening night, Maude made the owner refund the difference between what the ticket should have cost and what he upcharged before she would take the stage. Oh. She's like, I'm not going on unless you give people their money back. Yeah. I was like, good for That's you. That's really cool. I like this woman <laughs> a lot. I thought she was super delightful. Um, and it turns out she, you don't really know about her because she never really got into movies. She was up for a couple of movie parts, but it just kind of wasn't her thing. And it yeah. was like, but that time it was the 1930s and she was kind of overacting and she had enough money anyway. So whatever. True. Now, Mott was also considered, quote unquote, retiring. She didn't really party and she wasn't really known to date. But I'm pretty sure the dating part is mostly probably because she was definitely a lesbian. Maybe probably. Okay. Maybe probably. Maybe probably. She did have a, quote, personal secretary and companion oh well yeah for 50 years okay yeah (laughs) definitely 
Her name is Louise Boyton, and uh, they're actually buried together uh, in the same grave, which is like tear. That's really cute. But she, but uh, Louise was a alumni of an other woman's college. So when the job came up to organize and expand the theater department at Stevens College, she encouraged her. So when Ma took over, she basically transformed the department. And on campus, she was not only known as a inspiring teacher, but as a notoriously demanding teacher. Okay. Students learned to disappear quickly when they heard the distinctive tip-tap of Maude's clunky shoes throughout the theater hall and in the, in the, the theater department. Um, she remained there for quite a few years. Uh, she left in 1949. She passed away in 1953 at the age of 80. Aww. But her dedication to the theater transcends the grave. According to students, even as recently as the early 2000s, when they are in the auditorium, the old theater wing, they will hear the tapping of Maude's oh, shoes. No. It's also been said that in a quiet theater, you can hear her reciting Shakespeare hmm. um, and also some of the lines from her best known Broadway roles as if she's still teaching classes. That's weird. Isn't that great? Yeah. So if you're interested in checking out some of the spooky goings on at Stevens College yourself and you happen to be in Columbia, you can do that. Every year, the Sigma Sigma Sigma, or Tri-Sigs sorority at Stevens, organizes a tour around campus. And they not only incorporate some of these great stories that I just told you, but they also dress up in costume and pop out at random locations. Oh, God. So it's like the best historical ghost tour with a little haunted house mixed in. Interesting. Yeah, so I don't, I don't... do well with people popping out at me. <laughs> I don't. I punched someone before, and I can't do those haunted houses. It's not that scary. I think it's more. It's like kind of girls in like zombie makeup, being like, Bleh. okay, that's not too bad. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really charming. So uh, next time you can go safely to a campus tour, I highly recommend checking out the Trisig haunted tour of Stevens College. Yeah. So Aiden, thoughts? I would definitely go there. Right. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, Mod seems amazing right i was so delighted to learn about a uh yesteryear star that i had no idea about yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i always knew they have women playing peter pan mm-hmm. constantly because more limber more normally thinner younger mm-hmm. looking because peter pan's supposed to be a young boy boyish yeah yeah um so that works as far as creepy crying baby <laughs> not into that not into being bruised those two things are not my things. Yeah, I was looking at their, um, just like at the school's website. I'm like, how many residence halls are there? And can I get away if I went there as a student with not dealing with any ghosts? Yeah, right. <laughs> and you can, but. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for that. That was really cool. Yeah. Uh, my sources were, of course, Stephen, stevenscollege.edu, examiner.net, hauntedplaces.org, and Vox Magazine. Oh, awesome. All right, guys, that is our show for this week. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also check us out on social media. We are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter. You can also visit our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. As always, we'd like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rocks Designs for our logo. Also, remember to like and subscribe, rate and review, tell your friends. And yeah, that's it. So we will see you next time. Until then, creep creep on, creeping on. on.